You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Um, I was out of town, and let me just say this. I really, I really missed you guys. Okay, well, well, not really, because, but just listen, listen, because I was riding bikes in Bend, which almost didn't happen. I'll tell you about that here in a moment. But listen, just take comfort in this, knowing that if that trip wouldn't have happened, I would have really missed riding bikes in Bend. So, yeah, I kind of Bilbo baggage you guys there a little bit, right? Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, um, yeah, my name is Randall. I'm one of the leaders here. And let me tell you why this trip, and you could probably guess why it almost didn't happen, is because we began engulfed in wildfires, right? So we were going to stay like just north of Lapine and then ride bikes in Bend. And so all last week, I was just frantically like checking every single like piece of data that I could, every weather channel, every weather app, just going like looking for like, where's the smoke? What's happening with the smoke? And in that whole area, was just engulfed in smoke and ash, which means you can't ride bikes. And so I was so back and forth all week long, telling my buddies, this is like our annual trip. Got a bunch of old men that go and ride bikes in the woods together. And I was so looking forward to it. And I was so bummed. I was supposed to leave Thursday morning. And so I was just, again, like I was looking at all this stuff that I've never even looked at before. Like, like measuring how much smoke went, like in the air and all that. I was like a meteorologist. I think I found my new calling. That's what I'm doing next. I'm going to be a weatherman. And so then, so I'm going, I'm texting back and forth with my buddies. And I'm like, guys, I don't know. Like, should we just call it right now? It's not going to happen. And they're like, they're like, no, you know, it's getting, they're all positive. And um, so Wednesday night I go to bed and I'm like, hey, maybe, maybe I could like pray about this, right? And so I, I did. I mean, and I hadn't thought about that the whole time, like so much anxiety. And so I prayed. I was like, God, could you just please take this smoke and fire and move it somewhere else? And whoever else has to deal with it, whatever, I don't know. But like, let us go ride bikes in the woods. And I woke up Thursday morning and pulled up the app. And I look, that's what I saw, right? Which you probably can't read, but that green just means good. So it moved from like unhealthy or hazardous to like good, good, good. And I was like, I did it. I mean, God did, I did it. It worked. Prayer worked. Prayer is awesome. It worked. Um, I mean, it didn't really because as I was driving up Oak Ridge Way, like Highway 58, I just kept checking it and it just all came right back in. But we managed it. We rode bikes. It was awesome. Now, now listen, if you're anything like me, you're probably like less than confident in prayer, right? Like you find yourself all too often like struggling with how to pray or what to pray or when to pray. Well, hopefully today you're going to find some solace and some encouragement knowing that, well, you're in good company because even Jesus's earliest followers needed some guidance and direction when it came to prayer. So as we look at this story today in Luke's gospel, we'll see that Jesus the rabbi teacher, he won't leave his followers ill-equipped or uninformed when it comes to prayer. He's going to teach them this very important lesson. And in teaching them about prayer, he reveals something so profound as our king and so profound about his kingdom. So before we dig in, let me actually pray and we'll see what Jesus has to say. 
Father, we, we thank you that we can come to you this morning in prayer. We're, we're dependent upon your presence this morning. Would, would your Holy Spirit that lives inside of us fill us with worship and awe and reverence for your word and ultimately for, for you, the living word. God, may we live lives of deep obedience to your gospel and the call that it places on our life. We love you and we worship you. In your name we pray, amen. So last week, we launched into this new series, and we started talking about the parables that Jesus taught. Specifically, we're just looking at the ones in Luke. And while parables are used all throughout ancient literature in like a very specific way, Jesus kind of appropriates them and then uses them to illuminate what was central, core, and the very heart of his teaching. Like if you looked at all the things that Jesus said, what he's always talking about is his kingdom, the kingdom of God. Through all of these teachings, he's revealing what his kingdom on earth would look like lived out, showing us God's standard of flourishing for his image bearers. And Jesus wants his followers to know and see something. He wants to, us to, like, dr- these parables about the kingdom, he wants them to drive us back to him in awe of who he is and what he's done, to call us back to him in dependence and need to erode our trust in our performance and to deepen our faith in him and to to rattle us out of the worship of things, ourselves or this world, and to worship him. So we need to understand this. When Jesus tells a parable, he's not merely directing us to some like heartwarming anecdote or some sort of like fictional eight ball, right? He's directing our hearts, our minds, our souls to his heavenly eternal kingdom. And these parables reveal what our hearts and eyes have such a hard time seeing and understanding that his eternal kingdom is here and it's now, it's breaking in and it's restoring. It's making all things that are sad, untrue, all things that are broken and lost are restored and found that the, the reality that God's kingdom is being done on earth here and now. So, so, so what does this story that we're about to look at tell us and reveal about Jesus, his father, and his kingdom? Well, chapter 11 opens and we find Jesus doing what? Well, he's, he's praying. And one of his disciples, and, and we don't know who, who specifically, but he asks him, hey, would you teach me what to do or would you teach me to do what you're doing? Which is interesting because Jesus' followers as Jewish men and women, they would have had a pretty robust prayer life. They would have grown up being taught how to pray and what to pray and when to pray. So, so, so why would this disciple ask Jesus to teach him something that he already knew? Well, there's something that they saw in Jesus when he was praying, which he did a lot right? What they saw was more than an empty ritual to fulfill a religious obligation. It was this intimate communion with the Father. For Jesus, prayer was, was this soul-nurturing connection with his Father. So, so look at what happens in verse 1. Now, now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught 
his disciples. So then Jesus proceeds to give them what appears to be some pretty simple instructions. But with that, Jesus is completely reorienting their ideas about prayer. He reveals that it's far less about what you pray and far more about who you're praying to. So let's just walk back through what is most commonly called or referred to as the Lord's Prayer. This is where Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Now, he's not saying you have to say these specific things, although sometimes we do. So he says this. He says, when you pray, say, Father. Now, we need to pump the brakes right there because that's so significant. That simple little title that Jesus uses, Father. Father, it can be lost on us unless we frame it up through the entire lens of Scripture. So if you just do like a brief word study through the Old Testament, you'll discover that Father is used as a title for God like a little bit more than a baker's dozen, like 15 times, and that's it, right? None of which any of those references relate to anything to do with prayer, okay? So it's not a common title in the Old Testament ascribed to God. There's other titles. There's Yahweh. There's, there's, a, there's a depth of titles that they would have used, but it's an entirely different story when you begin to flip through the pages of the New Testament. 165 different times, God is now referred to as Father. So the picture that's painted through the New Testament is that for Jesus' followers, God is our heavenly Father. Jesus says, you get to call him Father. And I hope that you just stop and sit under the weight of what that means. Jesus is saying that God has adopted you as his kids. You're a part of his forever family. The, the theological concept is everywhere throughout the New Testament. Paul writes in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I love how J.I. Packer writes about it, this concept of adoption in, in knowing God. He writes, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Now, I, I've got one more quote, and it's from, I keep on wanting to say Dane Cook, which would be a really weird person to quote right now. Uh, it's Dane Ortland, and he has this book called Gentle and Lowly. And I just read it this morning, and so I don't have it up there. But he says this. He says, the battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ's. That is, getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with the mindset full and free of full and free adoption into the family of God through the work of Christ, your older brother, who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. So you see, Jesus is doing so much more than just saying, pray this, or this is how you pray. He, he's, he's giving this, this new understanding of who Yahweh is to his people. So we need to understand this. We need to sit again under the weight of this, because this is the truth. The God who spoke you and everyone else and everything else into existence, you get to call 
Father, the God who is rich in mercy and unending in grace, you get to call Father. The God who is righteous and just, you get to call Father. The God who is steadfast in his love and faithful to his covenant, you get to call that God Father, the God whose promises are all yes in his son Jesus, who loved you so much that he would stand in your place, receiving the full weight of, sh of shame for sin, you get to call that God Father. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that the primary way that he wants to relate to you is as a father to a child. That's why Malachi ends the Old Testament and he says, here's what's going to happen. He's going to show up, right? This prophet's going to show up and he's going to turn the father's hearts to the children and turn the children's hearts back to the father, right? Jesus is saying that, that this God, that Yahweh, he's adopted you as his kids. You're a part of his forever family. And we need to just rest in that truth today. Prayer is about knowing God and approaching God, and sitting under the weight of who he is as your father. So Jesus is revolutionizing their understanding of prayer, and that primary purpose of prayer is not getting what you want or stuff, but it's to be with someone, your father. Prayer is not trans transactional, it's relational. So, so the greatest answer to your prayers, right, and this is why like I can see it now, like where I went so weirdly wrong in my prayers about like, just clear the smoke out, right? The greatest answer to your prayers that the Father gives you is himself. Jesus will make that so explicit to us in these last few verses in this passage. But let me just show you what I mean as we walk through the rest of this. I just want to show you from what Luke writes here. So Jesus is revealing that God is our Father and we are his kids which is Jesus's role and purpose. Just look at what he said in the first part of John 17, 26, as he's praying his, his great high priestly prayer. He says, I made, them, them, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. And as you read through that prayer, Jesus addresses God throughout that prayer in John 17 as his father. And he says, I showed up and I made your name known to them, and your name now is Father. And he moves on. Let's flip back to Luke 11, verse 2. And look what comes right after that. He says, hallowed be your name. So, so yes, like do we ask God for things? Is it okay to ask God for things? Absolutely. But look at what Jesus says after you, after you come under the weight of your heavenly father, sitting with him. He says, then you ask for this. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray, is to ask for things, but look at what he starts with. He says, God, may your name be holy. May, may your name be revered. Like, we, we have to catch what Jesus is saying here. He, he's not so much praising God as, he's, as he is throwing up this request for God's name to be praised. He's saying in all the spaces and places where your name is currently not holy, currently not revered, currently not worshipped, may you cause it to be. So that's a prayer request. He's saying, God, would your name be everywhere on the lips of your creation, and maybe, uh, maybe it is ascribed as holy, because you're Father, and you're worthy of all worship. Now, now look at how he ends verse 2. So there's just so, there's so much packed into just one verse. He says, your kingdom come. 
So, so Jesus wants his followers to know that, that he's the good and righteous king. Our father is the king who is coming, and we should desperately desire his return. I think we can see how significantly prayer is tied to that if we turn to Matthew chapter 9. So in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has this curious interaction with, with his cousin John's followers, right? And, and Jesus is with his followers, and John's followers approach him, and they ask him, like, hey, why are, your, why are your followers, Jesus, why are they not fasting? But look at his answer. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. So, so he's saying, when I'm gone, right, Jesus is the bridegroom in this picture, when I'm gone, my followers will long for me so much and in such a way that it will drive them to the spiritual rhythm of fasting. And in fasting, it'll turn their hearts to me. It'll turn their hearts and affections towards, towards desiring for me to return. And while this passage doesn't explicitly mention prayer, prayer and fasting would be so closely linked that we can assume that Jesus would also say the same thing about the spiritual rhythm of praying right? When Jesus isn't with us, we should pray for his return. Church, we should, we should say our, our earnest prayer should be, come Lord Jesus, come, return, which is so convicting, right? Because if we're not actively praying that for him to return, we're actually revealing that we're satisfied in his absence, but Jesus is teaching us to pray these type of prayers. I want to see your kingdom come. I want to see your justice reign, your mercy reign, your kingdom consummated on this earth. That hope-filled belief should be the fuel that sparks all of our prayers because we believe it will happen because he's our father who keeps his promises. And Jesus is coming back for his bride. And in the in-between, we pray and live as if that is already true. And we should know that this is not just a wait-out-the-clock kind of situation either. We're not just sitting and waiting for Jesus to return and usher us off to some other place. He's invited us to join in his great restoration mission here to bring heaven to earth. N.T. Wright said it this way, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is about. So we actively join him in restoring our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools and our neighborhoods and the places that we live and move. We are colonizing Albany with heaven as his followers. Verse three, give us each day our daily bread. So the next thing that Jesus reveals is that the father is the giver of all good gifts, right? But, but all too often, like if you're like me, like we just fail to pray like that, right? And let's be honest, how many of us actually prayed anything this morning? And even if we did, did we ask God to meet us today in our needs, to provide for us today? Like we live in a place and a culture where praying for daily provision is so easy to overlook because we have bread for today. We even have bread for people who can't eat bread, right? So, so we should pray like that. Absolutely. Prayers of provision allow us to declare our dependency on God. 
They are our declaration that it's not our own sufficiency, but his. It's a daily reminder that in a self-sufficient culture of abundance like we live in, that we are a God-dependent people. We only have what we need because he provides it. I think that's why so many of us struggle with prayer. We've been convinced that we can sustain ourselves, but prayers of need and dependency guard our heart against that type of pride, and they inform us what the gospel is all about. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, we're just kind of rocking through the Lord's Prayer, because remember, we have a parable to get to, um, but I wanted to show you what Jesus is doing in this verse, right? And he's saying this, he's saying, our Father forgives our sins. He, he pours his mercy and grace out to us. And we should pray that, Father, forgive us of our sins. Listen, I think the more that we come to the Father in prayer, the more that we grow in our understanding and depth of prayer, the more that we grow in our intimacy with the Father, the more we come before him in, in prayer, our sinful hearts are exposed. So, so we should build a rhythm of confession and repentance in our prayer. Charles Spurgeon said this, When I stand at the foot of his cross to be washed, I bring nothing but sin. So when we come before him, we bring our sin and we confess it and we lament it and we repent of it. And the good news of the gospel is this. We have a heavenly father who says, my mercy is new for you every morning, just poured out on you, washing over you. And then look what's next. And lead us not into temptation. Our father leads our lives. He's saying we ask him to lead and guide and direct our lives. Why? I don't know about you guys, but I can make a habit of getting lost. I'm so easily distracted. I'm so tempted to make and follow my own plans every day and not even invite him into the situation. So help me, guide me, lead me so I can walk in your will and your plan for me. I can live out your mission that you have for your church. So that's how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And those are things that we bring before our Father. That's the Lord's Prayer. Then he goes on, right? So that's the teaching, and the parable always kind of gets thrown alongside the teaching, right? So then he tells this story. Let me do a little bit of background first. In this area specifically, and in this culture during the first century, they placed a high value on hospitality. And you have to understand that to kind of get what Jesus is doing, right? So even if you had just a little, you would show hospitality to both friends and strangers. So, so let's just read this short little story that Jesus tells, once again, that, that Whitney read to, to kind of set this up. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So there's three people on this, right? It's a little confusing. 
there's this question. There's just like, which of you? So there's a guy that has a friend showing up. So there's two people, right? The guy has a friend showing up from a journey, and he asks for some bread. The guy realizes, I don't have any bread. So then he goes to a neighbor's house or a friend's house and asks for these three loaves of bread. So that's kind of, that's who's in the story, right? So the story is about this guy, again, who has a friend. He shows up. He's a long journey. He's hungry. But the guy has no bread. So he walks over to his neighbor's house when, at midnight, and he knocks on his door and asks him for three loaves of bread, which is an outrageous thing to do, right? Especially if that neighbor is like a crazy prepper who would just as likely welcome you at his door with double barrels of buckshot, right? So when he says the guy inside the house who just got woken up in the middle of the night, he's talking about him, right? And he says, hey, like, leave me alone. Don't bother me. I just finally got my kids to sleep, and I'm not going to get up and give you anything, right? So again, first century hospitality was so central to that culture, to like a cultural value. So if you go knocking on someone's door at midnight, tradition demands that you have to respond. So the friend has two options here. He can be a bad neighbor and not get any food for the guy that's outside knocking, or he can get up in the dark, rummage, stumble through the kitchen, rummage through the shelves and and get some bread. And then risking waking up his whole family, he can go to the door, open the door, let light in and give you those loaves of bread, okay? Because first century houses were just one big room. Here's what that meant. Everyone else in the family all slept together in one big room. Parents, awkward, right? Weird, right? So you're risking waking everyone up. But then Jesus says, that despite the neighbor's initial refusal, and and this is important, he doesn't respond to the knocking and like the give me the the bread. He doesn't respond and actually give in because the guy's his friend. He says he finally responds and gives the guy some bread because because of his impudence, right? He finally capitulates to the request because of his impudence. I can't believe I just used those two words in one sentence, right? (laughs) And pronounce them correctly. Let me pause, because the word impudence is not something that we use often, right? The NIV translates it this, shameless audacity, right? So the word used there means bold or brazen, audacious, shameless. So the guy is so bold and shameless that he has the audacity to wake up his neighbor at midnight risking waking up the rest of the family, making him not so much a neighbor, certainly not a friend after this. And he keeps knocking and asking until his neighbor gets up and finally gives him some bread, right? And he gives him the bread because he keeps knocking because of this audacious thing that the guy's doing. So here's probably the most common thing that we do with parables, right? You hear the parable and then you go like this. Okay, someone in the parable is me and then someone in the parable is God right? That's the, that's the most common thing that we leap to. And our first reaction is probably this. We're the guy outside knocking, but then that makes God the guy on the inside, this curmudgeonly old man yelling through his door, go away, don't bother me, leave me alone, who finally is worn down and gives like the neighbor what he needs because he just keeps on knocking, right? So is Jesus teaching that the father is a grumpy old guy that's always bothered with us? Is that consistent with everything that he said about God so far? Like, no, right? But if we just keep pestering him long enough, right, we're going to get what we want. So, so that wouldn't be consistent at all with Jesus' teaching and who we know God to be. So the key to this parable 
is the question that Jesus asks at first. He asks, which one of you, right? So which one of you would actually do this? Which one of you would be filled with impudence to do this? Which would you be so shamelessly audacious, bold, and brazen to be the guy that goes and wakes up your neighbor, right? He's saying none of you would probably do this in real life, right? Because it's weird. It's socially awkward. Who does that, right? And the point of the story all comes back to this impudence, this shamelessness, And we'll only understand what Jesus is saying if we put ourselves in the shoes of the guy that's on the outside, the impudent guy. Jesus tells this story from that guy's perspective, and the guy on the inside is not a comparison to God, the grumpy old guy, as much as he is a contrast to God. The grumpy guy on the inside is bothered and unapproachable, but throughout this whole section of Jesus' teaching, he has been showing us that our Heavenly Father is the exact opposite. He's our King who has all authority and dominion and power and might, and he's completely accessible and approachable to us which would not have lined up with their ideas and experiences of those in power over them. They were the opposite. They were unapproachable. They were inaccessible. And if you were impudent or shamelessly audacious with them, you'd probably lose your head. In the hit HBO show Succession, which I am not recommending to you, I just read about it, it tells the story of the fictional Roy family right? And it's set in this like cutthroat world of, of, of like Manhattan business. And the patriarch, Logan Roy, dominates and subjugates his children, exploits their greatest fears and insecurities, casting a long shadow of unloving abuse and neglect over them, manipulating them for his own gain. They live in fear of his presence And at even the slightest thought of attempting to gain his attention, let alone his affection, it causes them to like cower in terror, right? I hope and pray that's not the type of relationship that you have with your actual father, but that's the type of relationship that most of the disciples would have had at least with the people in power around them. They would have been so fearful to approach them, especially a king, maybe even their own father. But Jesus tells this parable and he flips the script. He's saying this is how we should approach God with this bold and shameless audacity. He's our heavenly father who has all authority. He's sovereign over all things. And yet we can approach him with this shameless audacity, with this confidence. The beauty of this parable is the one who has all authority and power is also approachable to us. Our Father has actually invited you and me to come to him any day, any time, for anything. And just think about the audacity that that takes, the shamelessness to approach creator God and say, now I know you got a lot of things going on right now, I know when everyone's vying for your attention, I know that multitasking is real real hard. Like that's just me saying multitasking is real hard. I can't text and walk. I proved that yesterday. I tried to text and walk. I couldn't do it, right? And we come to God and say, man, you've got so much going on, but, but I've got some things that I'd like for you to like give some of your time to. I've got some stuff on my heart that I'd like for you to just listen to. 
That seems pretty audacious, doesn't it? But, but that's the point. It, it almost seems luda what? Ludicrous, right? To go to the God of the universe and say, hey, do you have some bread? Because I'm in need. But Jesus is saying, be as awkward and as weird as you are. Be shameless before him. Be undignified before him. Why? Because your heavenly father isn't a grumpy old man. He delights in being with those who are bold enough to bother him. And he's invited you in prayer to be with him and share your heart with him and tell him everything. Listen, we have three kids who we love so very much. They're the most amazing children in the world. And we tell them all the time, you can tell us anything. You can come to us and talk to us about anything. And sometimes, especially when they were younger, they stretched that for us. Because listen, kids cannot tell stories, can they? They're like, listen, could you just stick the landing at some point? Is there any characters in this story? Is there a conclusion? What is happening, right? But think about that. If I tell my kids, you can come to me with anything. I'll listen anytime. And sometimes they just want to come to me and complain about their math homework. And I'm like, I don't get it. I don't, even, I don't understand what you're talking about. I literally don't understand what you're talking about. But can you imagine if I said, eh, and stiff-armed them, and it was like, hey, not that, or I don't have time for you, or I didn't want to listen to that, right? No. Like, whatever they want to tell us, we sit and we listen because we love them. He's invited you to unburden your heart shamelessly before him. So let's just wrap this up. Jesus closes with this like Magna Carta of prayer. Like we all know this, right? And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Bay is so excited about that. You know that one? Awesome. So, if we're honest, that can be a bit confusing, right? Because how many of you have done that? How many of you have shamelessly asked God for things only to have God not give you what you prayed for or to seemingly have it go unanswered? Which is why I love where he goes next, right? Because he paints this contrast, right? So he answers our, un, like our seemingly unanswered prayers in what he says next, right? And he contrasts, he paints this contrast between heavenly fathers earthly and earthly fathers. Because he, he, says, he says this like really weird thing, right? He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. To which I honestly say that kind of sounds awesome, right? Like I would totally do that if I had a good poisonous arachnid connect, but I just don't, right? So, so listen, if you're a parent in here, who doesn't want to be a good father or a good mother? Who does not want to give to their kids what they desire, right? We try our best to love and lead them, but none of us are perfect in that. And Jesus is saying even a good parent is imperfect and they still give their kids what they want. They wouldn't give them something harmful like a snake or a scorpion, but even a good parent fails in comparison to our heavenly father because look at what he says next. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. 
Matthew's version of this just says God gives you good things. I love how Luke narrows it down to this specific thing that God gives you. The Father gives his children in prayer when we come to him his very best answer to our prayers. He doesn't give us a snake. He doesn't give us a scorpion. He gives us himself. He gives us his presence. He gives us his son to us on the cross. He gives us his spirit to us for daily living. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how he not give us every good thing. We can live in daily dependence on God because our Father will give us the one necessary thing that we so desperately need, the Holy Spirit. And through the Spirit, God provides all that we truly need to defeat temptation, to forgive us our sin, to find daily bread. Church, we live in this weird overlap. We exist in this in-between, this already and not yet, this seen and unseen. Jesus prays that his Father's will might be done here on earth as it's done in heaven, and then he instructs us to pray that way too. But then the amazing thing is that Jesus actually goes on and does it. He lives out that unseen reality in the world around us. He brings heaven to earth, and he invites us to do the same. He, acts, he asks us to join him in his great restoration project, to be these beacons of life, of the life to come, and by his spirit, bring that reality, this deeper reality to everyone around us. Jesus's instructions about the kingdom in this prayer highlight that heaven will invade earth fully. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. It's about the kingdom of heaven invading this kingdom of earth, setting all things right, making all things that are sad untrue. And we are now a part of that beautiful invasion. Right now, we live in the overlap, a bit of heaven in us, bringing bits of heaven to our city and the world around us. But one day, and this is our prayer, one day Jesus is coming back for his bride. And when he comes back, he will make all things new. That's why we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray, and then let's respond to this truth. We get to respond in a lot of different ways today. Austin's going to come back up. He's going to lead us through some songs. And, and may our hearts, as we sing, may our affections and our passions and our desires and our worship lift up our voices to the one good true King who is worthy of all, all praise. May we make his name holy as we sing and as we pray. You can take a moment. You can pray through the Lord's Prayer. You can pray it out loud if you want to. Get weird. Get shameless. Get audacious this morning in your worship of him. We're all his kids, and we should all love him as our father. We get a chance to give, and when we give, it's not about a number. It's about us giving and, and giving back to God what he's so freely given out of a heart of generosity, out of a heart of worship for our good king. And then finally, we get to respond by going to this table and declaring his sacrifice 
Not our own sufficiency, not our own works, not what we do or have, but his daily bread that he gives us and his blood poured out for us that he gives us. That is enough. That is what saves us. That is what redeems us. And so when you go to the table, you're declaring Jesus's finished work as enough for you. So let me pray and let's respond.